This episode is brought to you by no one other than the members and donors of the Best of the Left podcast. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Young Turks, Ring of Fire, Slate Magazine, The Colbert Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, and a bonus clip today for our iPhone and iPod Touch application users from The Young Turks. Just to warn you, everybody duck, there's an F-bomb coming in the very first musical segue. I guess it was last February. Federal government called before them the titans of Wall Street. <laughs> Bit of a talking to. Does the industry have anything that we should apologize to the American people for? Because we didn't catch this. We didn't do everything right. Far from it. All of us here, who are here today and many who are not here bear some measure of responsibility. Many people believe, and in many cases justifiably so, that Wall Street lost sight of its larger public obligations and allowed certain trends and practices to undermine the financial system's stability. Wow, three Mia not-so-culpas. <laughs> Did they say anything? Certainly, we agree, the larger yet smaller of the Wall Street certainly can, in some minds, play. Yes. <laughs> this is bull Cut to a year later, thanks to the bailouts, the banks are thriving, bonuses are back up to record levels. Uh, these guys still don't get it. Well, not for long. A 10-member bipartisan commission charged with finding the causes of the financial crisis has been formed. Stand back, Wall Street. The Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission team is all over your assets. They're coming, Wall Street, and they're going to be writing a report <laughs> that is due out in December? <laughs> it's like 11 months. What the f***? <laughs> By then, these bankers are going to be so far beyond just mortgage-backed securities derivative stuff, they're probably going to be packaging something called breathing swaps. <laughs> When did my bank add the $45 oxygen to carbon dioxide conversion fee? <laughs> I kid, I'm sure this commission is going to do more than just ask for some vague apologies. What are the two most significant instances of negligent, improper, and bad behavior in which your firm engaged and for which you would apologize? Whatever we did, whatever the standards of the time were, it didn't work out well. We as an industry caused a lot of damage. We did not do everything right. All right, we done here? I'll see you guys at the next We're Sorry meeting, all right? Hey, next year, why don't we hold this thing at our place? You know what I mean? Guys, we'll fly up, catered lunch, our offices have some sick views, even the bathrooms. Have you ever taken a dump while looking at the Statue of Liberty? I mean, <laughs> sublime. <laughs> Come on, finance guys, Diamond from J.P. Morgan, show us a little bit of the human. You know, my daughter called me from school one day and said, Dad, what's the financial crisis? And without trying to be funny, I said, it's the type of thing that happens every five to seven years. Yeah, I think she was asking to make sure you knew. <laughs> By the way, this wasn't just a five to seven year financial crisis. This was the closest thing we've had to a second Great Depression. 
And you're the guys who are running the show for the last time. Seriously, the last time. Swear on your mother's retirement plan. How did this happen? Somehow we just missed, uh, you know, that home prices don't go up forever. <laughs> Let me get this straight. You and your financial wizards thought housing was the only thing that followed no laws of economics or physics. <laughs> I don't know, man. I thought uh, housing would simply go up forever. Clearly we had it confused with our own bonuses. <laughs> Actually, you know what? That's, that's not fair. That makes everybody seem like rich ass who get insanely rich when the banks do well and pretty rich when they do less well. <laughs> Goldman Sachs CEO reminds us that there are real people, many levels below him at his company, whose lives are actually impacted when these banks fail. In this downturn, um, we took our firm-wide compensation down, and this includes people whose compensation it's hard to take down because they are um, secretaries and staff. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> I mean, I went from 20 million to 10 million, you know, whatever. But you cut a secretary's salary in half, they feel it. <laughs> and these girls are eating mustard sandwiches, I gotta tell you. It's gotten so depressing, I only take the private elevator. But you're still fucking peasants, as far as I can see. Now, is the economy improving? All right, now we get into some trouble, okay? Uh, I'm going to give you Joseph Stiglitz, uh, only won a, a couple of Nobel Prizes on uh, uh, economics. Uh, let's see if he thinks the economy is improving. He's going to be talking to Bloomberg News here. Uh, let's go to clip number nine. Reasons the stock market is doing well is interest rates are very low. One of the reasons interest rates are very low is the general prognosis of the slow recovery. So whenever interest rates are very low, stock market prices are, are often very high. Secondly, businesses have been ruthless in firing workers, uh, pushing down wages. It's good for profits, but not for the overall economy. So the two are really diverging. Um, Wall Street is talking up uh, the recovery because it likes to stale, sell stocks. But I just came back from the American Economic Association meetings in Atlanta, and there the sentiment among the economists was almost universally very pessimistic. Stieglitz also suggested that the U.S. government may have not have learned any lessons from the financial meltdown. In the United States, we have done nothing about the too big to fail with banks. We have done nothing, or almost in very little, about the derivatives that cost the American taxpayers $180 billion just in the bailout of AIG. While there may be complacency downtown in Manhattan, in Wall Street, uptown, in academia, at Columbia, the only question is when is the next crisis going to happen? 
Look, man, that's a serious warning. When is the next crisis going to happen? Do you understand what he's saying? Stock market, oh, it's going up. So people assume, oh, Obama's doing a good job stabilizing it or whatever. But he's saying, no, but that's disconnected from the real economy. The reason the stock market is going up is not because those companies in the country are doing better, you know, the small businesses, even large businesses. No, it's because interest rates are so low that that's driving a bubble in the stock market. Another disaster headed our way. Okay, you know what happens to bubbles? They burst. And it's, it's because of fiscal policy in this case. And he said, look, Wall Street's not complaining because they're making crazy cash out of it. All right, he's only won a couple of Nobels, so you might, you know, best to ignore his advice. So let's go to Simon Johnson, another one of the most respected economists in the country at MIT. He's going to be talking to CNBC. They're not really liking what he's saying, but he's got warnings as well. Let's watch. Simon, all right, crisis is just beginning. What do you mean? I mean, Aaron, very simply, that we now have a financial system that's completely based on moral hazard. They're too big to fail. All the big banks left standing believe that they are immune from any uh, future failure because uh, that's what happened in the last year. That's what Tim Guyton has told them. That's what Larry Summers has told them. And crazy things happen when you have a financial system like that. So what kinds of things might happen soon? I mean, all the bankers have come out. I mean, just what was it, a couple days ago, Brian, uh, Moynihan, the new CEO of Bank of America, said, hey, we're worried about the economy, all that sort of stuff, but the crisis definitively in the rearview mirror. Wrong? Definitely wrong. Really fascinating that this is their, their psychology. Uh, we're looking at emerging markets, and I think this is the next frontier for, for the crisis. Mm. You, there's a great carry trade, obviously, with cheap funding uh, from the U.S. The, the Fed is incredibly dovish, and that's not going to change. Money coming out of the U.S. or round-tripping through the U.S. from emerging markets, from rich people in Kazakhstan to the U.S., out to emerging market, maybe a Chinese, Brazilian investment. You're going to see a lot of frothiness. Now, the conventional wisdom is you can't have back-to-back -back major financial crises. I think we're going, to, we're going to push that. We're going to have a look and see whether that's true. The next 12 months could really be exciting. People could be very positive, but we are setting ourselves up for an enormous catastrophe. Oh, man. Here we go again. Isn't there anybody who comes on this show and doesn't see storm clouds on the horizon? What kind of catastrophe? Oh, what kind of catastrophe would you like? Look, your entire financial system, all the big players right now, the six, six yeah. major banks in the United States, their total balance sheet is over 60% of U.S. GDP. It got bigger during the crisis. All the big guys are, are out there looking to take risk. So, so would you, so would I, if we felt we were immune. If we had a get-out-of-jail-free card, wouldn't you, go, wouldn't you go take a lot of risk right now? Of course you would. Where do you take the risk? Well, it could be commodities, could be crazy things in the United States. I think, though, mostly it's going to be where everyone is sure the prices can only go up, and that's China, that's other emerging markets. Okay, uh, we're so hosed. <laughs> you know, the CNBC anchor there goes, oh man, why doesn't anybody come on and tell us something good news? Because there isn't. That's why every economist in the country that I've seen, all the respected ones saying, iceberg, straight ahead. You think two financial collapses can't happen in a row, but what Simon Johnson is telling you is, yes, it can. He says the next year will be exciting. I don't want that kind of excitement. I don't know, man. Is Obama listening? Does he have... Iceberg, straight ahead. You gave him a get-out-of-jail-free card. They took that to mean take more risk. Did you hear what Simon Johnson said there at the end? They have 60% of the GDP in the top banks. They got bigger. We can't let them go under now because they're so gigantic. So that means take more risk, take home more bonuses, and if it collapses, 
sad day for Obama, then we'll blame it on the Democrats. And by the way, you'll be right if you do, because Democrats right now are driving this, or you know, driving this massive ship right into that iceberg. One last one from Simon here. If you weren't depressed enough, he drives it home in clip number 11. Simon, I want to come back to you on a statement you made earlier saying that the banks are taking on more risk and they have more assets or, or their balance sheets are bigger than ever. I, I don't see that. I mean, uh, most lending is down. Balance sheets are actually smaller. Leverage ratios are way down. And, you know, it's still not that easy to get a big company to, to uh, a big bank to make a commitment to you uh, anywhere near the way they did in 05, 06, and even 07. So what are you talking about? Well, just look, just look at the numbers, the, the latest numbers we have uh, through the end of the third quarter and what we're going to see in the fourth quarter. The banks obviously are being tight on the lending. Uh, Jamie Dimon made a great statement about, about this to the Goldman Sachs uh, Investor Conference recently. I'm, I'm sure, you, sure you heard that. They're being tight on the lending, but they, they, they see great opportunities in, in markets, in over-the-counter derivatives, for example, in all kinds of foreign exchange operations. They are taking a lot of risk. Now, if they, they may tell you they're not, that may, I think, just speaks to the fact they don't understand the risk they're getting into. The meeting being held today by the Bank for International Settlements in, in, in Basel is exactly a confirmation of the point that I'm making. The officials are worried, but they don't know what to do about it because they've allowed them to become, the banks to become too big to fail. They're really in a hard spot. They don't want to raise rates right now, but they see the banks acting, beginning to act in a seriously irresponsible manner. What are they going to do? They should break up the big banks, but they don't have the political goal to do that right now. All right, Simon, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Simon. Really appreciate it. All right. Again, they're taking the risk because they know they can. What I like was the schmuck NBC, uh, CNBC anchors like, well, I don't get it. You know, they're not really lending, so I don't see it on their uh, record books. He's like, yeah, because we can't see their derivatives. The real risk is not in what they're lending to companies. That's not a problem at all. The problem is in the derivatives. When are you going to get that? <laughs> By the way, the CNBC guys drive me crazy with their stupid fake, you know, business attire where they take off the jackets. Why are you taking off your jacket? They take it off because, like, that's how the guys at work are. They got no jacket, but they got their tie on. That's how guys on Wall Street look. Everything about television is so fake, it drives me out of my mind. Jefferson said, here's his quote, he said, I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. That's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Sixty-three years later, Abraham Lincoln expanded that warning. Here's what Abraham Lincoln said. He said, I have two great enemies, the Southern Army in front of me and the financial institutions in the rear. Of those two, the one in the rear is the greatest enemy. I feel at this point more anxiety for the safety of my country than ever before in the midst of war. Close quote, Abraham Lincoln.
Both Jefferson and Lincoln look like oracles today. Both those presidents saw the same arrogance that Obama saw four weeks ago when he suggested that the banking industry's capo regime should meet to discuss the conspiratorial caliber conduct that they've exhibited for decades. The Citigroup CEO sent a message to Obama that he had other things to do than to personally meet with the president. One thing is clear, the bankers who did clear their schedule to meet didn't take the power of the presidency any more seriously today than bankers did when Abraham Lincoln called them America's greatest enemy. The week before Obama met with those bankers, he had publicly called them fat cats. A bunch of, uh, you know, fat cat bankers on Wall Street. He knew about banker history that Lincoln probably never could imagine. For example, he knew the history of Goldman Sachs profiting from the very mortgage crisis that they had helped to create. Obama knew that Goldman had made a profit north of $4 billion by betting that the sub-Ponzi scheme that they helped to create would collapse. The ugly part of that bet is that Goldman was still hustling their subprime derivative garbage to mom-and-pop pensions even while they were betting on that collapse. When Jefferson told us that the banking institutions would be more dangerous than standing armies, he had no way of knowing or foreseeing the tarp treachery that bankers pulled off with a $500 billion taxpayer money loan. But in 2008, Obama saw the beginning of that treachery when he watched America's most powerful bankers grovel like pathetic paupers begging for handouts. In fact, the Citigroup bankers, who couldn't clear their schedule to meet with Obama in 2009, were part of that groveling group. They received $20 billion in TARP welfare. Not only was Citigroup too busy to meet personally with the president, they also never met with any small businesses that they promised loans to. Citigroup was lying to those small businesses the same way they lied to the American public. Citigroup isn't the only beggar who lied to taxpayers in order to get handouts. All those Wall Street panhandlers told taxpayers that they'd agreed to new banking regulations to control their obscene greed. In fact, when they wanted welfare, a few of them admitted that it was a lack of regulations and regulatory enforcement that put America in the poorhouse. But the day after they got their handouts, they hired hundreds of rapacious K-streeters to undermine banking reform legislation attempts. Once again, the banking industry validated a warning Jefferson left us late in his career. Here's what Thomas Jefferson said. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless. You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. Today's story is called Bernie Madoff, M.D. 
Is the recession good for your health? And it's written by Timothy Noah. Bernie Madoff, Angelo Mozillo, Hank Greenberg. These guys, it's generally agreed, will go to hell for leading the United States into its worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. But if Stephen Bezruchka is right, they may go to heaven instead for achieving, at least temporarily, the twin goals of health care reform. The health reform bills passed by the House and Senate have two principal purposes, to improve Americans' health and to lower health care's cost. The final bill that emerges after House-Senate negotiations will likely achieve this first goal, at least insofar as it makes medical treatment more widely available, and fumble the second, though not so badly that the measure, which will include offsetting taxes and cuts in Medicare spending, adds to the budget deficit. But thanks to Madoff, Mozilla, and Greenberg, the recession that began after December 2007, and which may or may not be over, has already achieved that second elusive goal. And, according to Bezruchka, there's a good chance it will also achieve the first. Let's start with costs, where the data are less surprising. In 2008, total national spending, public and private, on health care grew by 4.4 percent, according to a new study by the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Four and a half percent was a pretty high spending growth rate compared with that for other goods and services in 2008. The overall inflation rate was zero. But the 2008 rate is low compared with health care spending growth in earlier years. Health spending grew 6% in 2007, 6.6% in 2006, and 7.9% in 2005. Private health insurance premiums grew a mere 3.1% in 2008, the smallest increase since 1967. The study's authors conclude that, while health spending is typically insulated from economic downturns, the recession that began in 2008 was severe enough to have an immediate and significant dampening effect. That was true even though federal health care spending grew unusually fast in 2008, 8.6% for Medicare, 8.4% for Medicaid. This study led me to wonder about what I presume to be the other side of the equation. A bad recession might have a salutary effect on medical inflation, but wouldn't it also worsen Americans' physical health? Yet in searching for evidence of this seemingly obvious conclusion, I discovered instead an article in the September 1, 2009 issue of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. That's right, Canada, socialized medicine paradise, arguing the opposite. According to the author, Stephen Bezruchka, a medical doctor and senior lecturer at the University of Washington School of Public Health, economic downturns were, during the 20th century, associated with declines in mortality rates. Maybe I'm reading this wrong, I thought. So I read on. In terms of business cycles, mortality is pro-cyclical meaning it goes up with economic expansions and down with contractions, and not counter-cyclical, the opposite, as expected. So, while most nations enjoyed sustained declines in mortality during the last century, the pace of the decline has been slower during economic booms and greater during so-called busts. The first rigorous studies demonstrating this trend have appeared only in the past nine years, although the concept is not new, according to the report. Indeed, the concept isn't even controversial. There's a pretty broad literature on this, MIT health economist Jonathan Gruber emailed in response to my puzzled query, and the consensus seems to be that recessions are good for health. 
Before proceeding, two caveats. Bezruchka's findings apply only to wealthy nations like the United States. In poor countries, economic growth decreases mortality rates, just as we expect it would, by providing the means to meet essential needs, such as food, clean water, and shelter, as well as access to basic health care services. This payoff, however, disappears after gross domestic product rises to a not very high $5,000 to $10,000 per capita. Also, losing your job remains, under most circumstances, bad for your health, just as you'd expect. According to one study cited by Bezruchka, losing one's job was associated with a 54% chance of reporting fair or poor health. And for a person with no pre-existing health conditions, the chances of reporting a new one increased by 83%. The message a fired employee often receives, that this is the best thing that ever happened to you, lampooned deftly in the film Up in the Air and in Barbara Ehrenreich's book Brightsided, How the Relentless Promotion of Positive Thinking Has Undermined America, is a con devised to reduce the discomfort and or legal liability of the person or company doing the firing. It's not an accurate or sincere prediction of the ditched employee's true prospects. Paradoxically, though, during an economic downturn in which a lot of people are losing their jobs, collective health tends to improve. Some of Bezruchka's explanations sound so Marie Antoinette-ish that I hesitate to repeat them with a straight face. He cites a study by Christopher J. Room, an economist at the University of North Carolina, who has studied this topic extensively, showing that during recessions, fat people lose weight, heavy smokers buy fewer cigarettes, and couch potatoes exercise more. Another room study shows that, although casual drinking increases during downturns, heavy drinkers reduce their intake so much that the aggregate consumption of alcohol declines. Bezruchka also suggests that having more time on your hands allows you to cultivate friendships, which have been shown to improve health, while working a lot and having little personal time increases your opportunities to experience job-related stress. Babies conceived during recessions tend to be healthier, too. Why do we find these beneficial health effects when people lose their jobs in a bad economy, but not when they lose them in a good one? Bezruchka doesn't offer much here in the way of explanation. Perhaps it's easier to take constructive steps to improve your health when you know your job loss is the result of economic forces beyond your control. Maybe there are more people with whom to cultivate friendships when unemployment is high. Automobile crashes decline during recessions. Is that because fewer people are racing to work? Bezruchka mentions the corrosive effect of economic inequality, globally speaking high in the United States, on a population's physical health. This point is amply demonstrated by the United States' famously poor ranking. We're 37th on the World Health Organization's international scorecard, even though we spend a larger share of our gross domestic product on health care than any other nation. One reason for this may be that economic inequality allows wealthier people to bid up the prices of health services and drugs to the point where they become unaffordable to the unwealthy. If a recession has the effect of reducing inequality, as may be the case now, that might improve health outcomes. That isn't Bezruchka's argument. He writes that an economic crisis can improve health outcomes by giving the government a concrete, urgent reason to address the problem of inequality. During the Great Depression, relief spending helped reduce inequality while simultaneously lowering the infant mortality rate. 
Bezruchka urges the federal government to use social welfare spending in a similar way today, perhaps by increasing spending directly on health care. That, of course, is precisely what the health reform bill will do. Would we have gotten this close to its enactment without the sense of urgency created by the 2008 recession? If not, then maybe Madoff, Mozilla, and Greenberg deserve our thanks. The new day dawns, and I am practicing my purpose once again. It is fresh and it is fruitful if I win, but if I lose, ooh, I don't know. I'll be tired, but I will turn and I will go. Only guessing till I get there, then I'll know. Oh, I will know. Shining in my windows, I write this song to you. And all the cars running fast along the interstate can feel the love that radiates, illuminating what I know is true. That all will be well, even after all the promises you broke into yourself. My guest tonight is a Rolling Stone contributing editor who says he knows who's responsible for our economic situation. Since it's Rolling Stone, I'm going to guess the White Stripes. Please welcome Matt Taibbi. sir let's hear your conspiracy theories you've been spinning this one for what four months now Something you've like been that, banging yeah. this drum that goldman sachs is this all-powerful financial institution that is controlling the government and our economy if they're that powerful are you afraid do you have somebody starting your car for you? <laughs> I'm not afraid of Goldman's. I'm afraid of their lawyers. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, I'm they're... not afraid of their lawyers. <laughs> You're not? No, no, no. Good luck with that. No, Goldman Sachs <laughs> are Satanists <laughs> who torture animals. You Come for it. me. <laughs> okay, I don't believe that, but I just want to show that I got balls. Right. Now, right. Well, what, what do you mean? Uh, you've said that Goldman Sachs uh, uh, takes advantage of bubbles that they help create. What, is, what do you mean by that? Well, Wall Street really used to be about helping investors find good business opportunities, which in turn would create jobs. It was Wall Street had an important part in helping stimulate the real economy. What's happened in the last 20 years is that it's really turned into one Ponzi scheme after the other. It's been, you know, the tech stocks or mortgages or the commodities bubble last year. It's turned into a purely speculative economy, and it's really basically a casino now where Wall Street makes a ton of money, but uh, no real jobs are created. Well, can casinos generate jobs? <laughs> they they go like down on the Gulf people. Coast? <laughs> but, but, but Ponzi schemes uh, or, or not, bubbles or not, that's what we make now. We make bubbles. Doesn't that generate cash? Doesn't that trickle down to the rest of us? It trickles down to Maybach dealerships in Long Island and a few beach houses in the Hamptons, but I think actually Sounds between, good. Better than nothing. between Manhattan and Los Angeles, that doesn't trickle down a whole lot. It actually trickles up this way, actually. So in, in what ways? You said that they, they create 
bubbles. They've created three bubbles that, that you name. Right, well. What, what are these three bubbles and how do they do it? Well, there was the internet, the tech stock bubble, and Goldman Sachs. I remember. Sachs, I remember. Right? You probably remember that. Did they, were, they, were they behind that? Were they were they the puppet masters there? At the height of the of the boom, Goldman was underwriting about one out of every four internet IPOs. And what was important there is that there's a, a collapse in underwriting standards. It used to be that you actually had to exist for a couple of years before a company would take you public, show some profitability. But what happened in the internet years is that these investment banks were taking companies that basically had been scrawled in the back of a napkin. They were taking them public too weeks later and it was a big scam to get people to invest in a hot stock that had no history but it worked for a while and it worked for a few people right it worked for a few people but at least it works for someone do you goldman sachs <laughs> goldman sachs and you know and and their boss uh lloyd blankfein who by the way is a friend uh -huh. <laughs> Good. lloyd please remember i said that if i ever meet you um <laughs> They are making a ton of money. Right. Hasn't the market spoken? Aren't they great businessmen? I mean, they, they were in this last little um, collapse we had, okay? <laughs> they survived, are now making money. The market found them innocent. Yeah, Lehman Brothers was given the death sentence. No, I think, Stephen, you actually have it backwards when you bet billions of dollars on subprime mortgages and then get the government to bail you out when it all goes wrong, and then you buy a beach house with taxpayer money. That's actually the opposite of the free market. But do you, I don't understand why you have why do you why you have it in for Goldman Sachs? Is it, do you just have a thing against unprecedented? Success. I mean, do you hate the Beatles or Harry Potter or Michael Jordan? I don't mind anybody who's successful as long as my tax money isn't going to pay for it. And that's the only problem with Goldman Sachs. Now you say you say that the Goldman people have unprecedented uh, access and influence uh, on our government. Like what? Like who? Well, like uh, Bob Rubin under Bill Clinton, the yeah, Treasury he's gone. Secretary. That's ancient history, man. Well, no, actually, it's not. He was uh, Obama brought him back then to the economic transition team, and pretty much half the government now used to either work for Bob Rubin or worked at Citigroup uh, with him, uh, or at Goldman Sachs, or at the Hamilton Project, which he, which he uh, was a think tank he founded. They're all over the government, and this, of course, is very handy when you need a bailout if you can just call the former head of your company and get him to speed through a. You know, a $13 billion bailout of AIG. Matt, are they hiring? <laughs> I wish. Because <laughs> it sounds like a pretty stable job. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's very easy now for Goldman Sachs to borrow money and to continue to make money. Their, their share price is continually rising because everybody knows they're never going to fail. If they ever encounter any trouble, they know the government's going to bail them out. And the rest of the market knows that, too. So they're sort of a failure-proof company, which, again, is kind of not the whole idea in capitalism. Now, uh, people who are critical of Wall Street uh, you know, tend to point to things like, um, you know, we need that kind of money for social services for, for, for Americans at home. But, but the bailout of Wall Street, it's just like bailout for people. People have bailouts, too. It's called Social Security. Okay? Right, right. They're risky with our money, and then we bail them out on the stock market. If we're risky with our lives, say, like you roll the dice and go, I'll be an improv actor. Doesn't work out. Right, right. Social Security would be your bailout at the end of that. So That's it doesn't true. even out. Uh, not, not quite. I mean, I think they, they got uh, significantly more money in the ballot than, than real people did. Uh, we, for, a good example is we could have basically paid off every subprime mortgage in this country for about $1.4 trillion. 
We ended up giving about 10 times that amount to Wall Street. We were basically paying off the bets on those mortgages. So it, it was really, there was no, it was an inequitable distribution of resources that entire time. Well, let me ask you this. What's the next bubble so I can get it on the ground floor? What are they going to trick us into thinking is valuable next? Well, it's probably going to be oil again, and the commodities bubble is probably going to happen again, or, or cat, the carbon credits, the cap and trade market is another thing that people talk about as being a, a future bubble. But You heard him, Nation. Put all your money on that. Matt Taibbi, <laughs> thank much. you so much. Matt Taibbi, Rolling Stone. Massachusetts seat, that's bad. But if then your reaction to that is panic, oh my God, run to the right, run to the right, let's make more deals with corporate America, then that reaction will doom you a hundred times more than that election. Instead, it looks like they got the message. Now, it's just two days so far, okay? But the message is jumping out of these articles. Let me tell you why. It, now, Time Magazine writing about it, Wall Street Journal, and several other sources all saying the same thing. There's a new sheriff in town, okay? On the financial side, Tim Geithner and Larry Summers have lost power. Oh, please let that be true. Please let that be true. And the new team is led by Paul Volcker. And Austin Goolsby, who's also another guy who was one of the most progressive guys on the economic team that was not being listened to. So the guys who were originally shunned by Obama now have come back, and they're on top. So everybody's talking about how Volcker's the one leading the charge. He's going up to Congress. He's lobbying the senators. He's t telling them what the new plan is. And all the insider accounts agree that Geithner and Summers have lost their power and have lost the battle. And, and they're also equally clear. We were right all along. And throughout the process, they were having these debates. Should we, will we be tougher on the banks? Should we have tougher regulation? or should, uh, should we not? And Geithner and Summers were always on the wrong side. They fought and fought for a year, saying, no, 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 don't regulate the banks, don't regulate them as much. And Volcker, the former head of the Fed, who is by no accounts a progressive or a liberal, is saying, what, are you crazy? This whole thing blew up. If you don't fix it, it's gonna blow up again. How can you not realize that? And finally, after these elections, Obama did realize it. Now, if you notice those facts and you say, hmm, what's the difference here? Did the facts change uh, as far as the economy is concerned? No, the politics changed, right? 
But what did I tell you about Obama? He is inherently a political guy. It's in his nature. Okay? That's what he primarily is. Now that the politics have shifted, and he sees, oh my God, the center of the country isn't where I thought it was, that they actually do want the change. Geithner wasn't right. Summers wasn't right. Well, I better get to work. Roll up the sleeves. You guys step aside. Here comes Volcker. Oh, that's a great development, man. Great development. Because it's not just uh, the ideas behind it that are important. It's not just even the top guy that's important. It's important to the guys that are executing the strategy and coming up with what the actual legislation is going to be and what the details are going to be are the guys that are on the right side, that understand the problem and know how to fix it. And that's what it looks like we got now. I am more proud of this show and love working on it more than anything else I've ever done in my life. And the members who sign up and stick with the show are the ones who allow me to follow my passion. Members sign up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year to support the show. In return, besides my undying gratitude, they also receive bonus material through the members-only raw feed. This includes audio and video content from the show and bonus material that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. All of this is delivered in organized feeds so members can access what they want and ignore what they don't. If you're a regular listener of this show and appreciate the service it provides, please consider becoming a member by visiting the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks a lot. As exciting as it has been this past year and a half or two years to see what the brink of the second Great Depression looked like up close, the administration has been pushing several ideas to help prevent another meltdown in the future. Among these ideas is the Consumer Financial Protection Agency. We're proposing a new and powerful agency charged with what, just one job, looking out for ordinary consumers. The new agency would regulate credit cards, mortgages, other financial products used every day by American consumers. As the proposal heads to the Senate after passing the House, Republicans say they will try to block it. Quoting from the Huffington Post's Ryan Grimm, from the Republican point of view, the idea of a separate agency is still anathema, said Senator Robert Bennett of Utah, a senior Republican on the Banking Committee. An independent agency, he said, can go too far in the direction of tight regulation without taking into account the effect of the rules it creates on business and the economy. He says he seen it happen before, quote, can you say EPA? In other words, Senator Bennett is against the idea of a financial protection agency because it could, could turn out to be just like the environmental protection agency, you know, with uh, requiring testing by public water systems to make, the, make sure the water is safe to drink and getting lead out of gasoline and ending the practice of dumping sewage directly into the ocean. Uh, to be clear, the Republican case against a consumer financial protection agency is that it might be like the agency that stopped us dumping sewage directly in the ocean. That's their argument against it. Joining us now is Elizabeth Warren, a key advocate of the CFPA. She's also a Harvard Law professor and chair of the Congressional Oversight Panel for the TARP bailout funds. Professor Warren, such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, what do you make of this? Uh, it'll be another EPA, and we mean that in a bad way, argument. Well, you know, I 
think that really is the approach, and that's the notion that regulation automatically means bad. And I, I don't know what to say about it. I, you know, regulation works. Do we really want to go back to world, not just with the EPA, but look at the rest of them, the Food and Drug Administration? I like to know that when I buy antibiotics, it's not rat poison and it's not baking soda. I like to know that when I buy a car, it really will come with brakes and with airbags. Uh, I like to know when I buy an infant child seat that on impact it won't collapse and crush the baby. Regulation helps us be safer. It works. Look, at the margins, can we argue about whether or not the EPA, Senator Bennett thinks it should have been a little weaker. I might think it should be a little bit stronger. At the margins. But the notion is regulation fundamentally works, and that's the problem with consumer financial products. There is no basic regulation. How have consumer financial products like mortgages, like credit cards, how have they ended up being totally unregulated? Well, this is what's amazing. They've ended up being totally unregulated because there are seven regulatory agencies, each of which owns a little tiny piece of the pie, ah. and each of which, four of which, compete for business with each other. Now, how do you compete for business with each other? That is, uh, if you'll come and be regulated by me, uh, the OCC says, I'll offer the least regulation possible. No, no, says the OTS, I could offer less regulation. So what we really have are regulators who aren't there to regulate on behalf of the public. We have regulators that are there to offer good deals to the banks. That's why I think President Obama's right when he says we need one, just one, regulator in Washington who watches out for American consumers. The Republicans offered precisely zero votes for this agency in the House, although it did pass with the Democratic majority. Uh, the senators uh, are already lining up against it. Obviously, it looks like there's going to be some maybe even unified Republican opposition. Uh, every Democrat will, be need, will need to be on board. Do you think there's a chance that it will pass? Well, I think there's a chance. Look, it's a David and Goliath story of, of huge proportions. And this is a Goliath who's not just big. This is a Goliath who is very well funded uh, by the financial services industry and has a lot of friends, the kinds of friends that money buys. And so they, they wield a lot of influence. But look, this is the moment. This is the financial services industry that brought us to the brink of a depression. They wrote those rules. They're the ones who've been in control. When they brought us to this crisis, they're also the ones who turned to the American taxpayer and said, now bail me out. Mm -hmm. And now they are using some of those very same dollars to turn around and lobby Congress to say, let us continue to write the rules that brought us to the brink of disaster. So. You know, now ought to be the moment. You first suggested an agency like this years ago. In terms of what the version of it now is now that's actually on the table, would it, if 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 this that version of it had been in place uh, five years ago, could it have helped prevent the meltdown? Absolutely. In fact, not not just could have. I, I really am going to be stronger in this. It would have prevented a huge part of this crisis. There still could have been some trouble and we could have had some bumps, but remember, this crisis started one household at a time. One lousy mortgage that got sold one family at a time and then bundled and rebundled and sliced and diced and put into the stream of commerce. And the importance of remembering that is this agency isn't just about protecting families, although I think that would be reason enough for mm -hmm. it. It's ultimately about protecting the whole economy. When we destabilize American families, when we sell them 
terrible products that explode in their faces. That in turn destabilizes the entire economy. These products that were going to offer these huge, huge profits weren't just lousy deals for consumers. They were lousy deals for investors. They were lousy deals for pension funds. They were lousy deals for the entire worldwide economy. We could have headed this off. He's now the president and CEO of the Peter G. Peterson Foundation. His new book is called Comeback America, Turning the Country Around and Restoring Fiscal Responsibility. I wish him luck with that. Please welcome <laughs> David Walker. <laughs> Comeback America, this may be the most sensible book I have read on a, a prescription, not just for a... a Government, but for ways that the government finances itself. Where, where have you been hiding these past Well, I years? haven't been hiding. In fact, I've been speaking out very loudly since about 2003 when it was clear to me that Washington right. became out of touch and out of control and there is no party of fiscal responsibility. You felt that there was a huge fiscal gap, that, that there was going to be a, a, a coming hell to pay, and you were in the government and you said it. And what did they say to you? Well, the fact is, is that when the statutory budget controls expired in 2002, Washington lost totally control. Uh, you know, they unfunded tax cuts, unfunded war costs, expansion of entitlement benefits, other spending out of control, and we are where we are today. Now, what, do you have any uh, uh, power over them? Can you just give them reports to say, I'm going to show you a, a, a little diagram. Uh, this is us. <laughs> this is the giant hole we're driving towards. <laughs> what... What can you do to them? Well, basically, I tried to state the facts and speak the truth and to be able to take all the numbers that the government uses, but they don't combine them. They don't add them up to be able to show how serious the problem is. And when you do that, you find out that every American household has got a $500,000-plus mortgage but no house to back that mortgage. And it's getting worse every second of every day. Can we draw loans on that 500000 <laughs> Only if the Chinese will lend us the money. Oh, man. Uh, when you do something like that and they don't add it up, is that purposeful on their part? Is it deception on their part or is it incompetence on their part? Uh, well, you know, we're not top 25 in the world in math and in Washington, D.C., <laughs> you know, we're not top 100. So. <laughs> I see. So it's an oversight for the most part. Oh, we should add these. <laughs> when, when you get down to it, the things that you put in there are, are very common sense in terms of you ask a great question, which is, what is the purpose of this plan? You, you talk about going through each plan and saying, do we have any metrics and goals that, that these can achieve? Believe it or not, the United States, which has been in existence since 1789, has never had a plan. The United States does not have outcome-based indicators for education, 
public finance, uh, environmental issues, savings issues, et cetera. So as a result, it's no wonder that we're a mess. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what's working. We don't know what's not working. And so therefore, people just throw money at problems, whether it's tax cuts right. or whether it's you know, spending increases. Do you mean, I know this, e pluribus unum, which is the, the Latin, I think, yes, I means we're winging this. <laughs> well, that's, that's accurate. By the way, what's this show going to be rated? I'm a little bit concerned about it after, after the two other segments. Don't, because really, it's for eight-year-olds. <laughs> so don't worry about that. <laughs> they know. The, uh, uh, the thing that I, I want to ask you is, how can you do these prescriptions? It seems like anytime you try something, so many different interests come in to block it. And so what you end up with is you're trying to satisfy every moneyed interest, every constituent interest, and you, you end up with you're unable to make any real change. Everything's cosmetic. How do you get around that? We have a dysfunctional democracy. We have something that the Founding Fathers never intended. Namely, we have people who are career politicians. They don't come from the real world. They don't go to the real world. And as a result, they view their position as a job rather than public service. They don't want to make tough choices because it might cost them their job. That's why we need policy, operational, and political reforms if we want to get this country on the right track. Do you think there's any chance, uh, Obama has been in office for a year, and I think to, to be fair, has been dealt a very difficult hand. Do you think uh, there is a possibility now within these next three years that he can enact or wants to enact these types of, of reforms? President Obama was dealt a very bad hand, a $1.2 trillion deficit. Uh, but what he's got to do is, in addition to trying to turn the economy around and getting unemployment down, he's got to come out and state the facts and speak the truth to the American people, hopefully as part of his State of the Union address, to have a plan for us to be able to make these tough choices after the midterm Does election. he call you? Does he ever talk to you? Does he know you're in the GAO? Has he ever, does he call you up and go, hey man, remember you were adding up all those numbers? Could I see that? Uh, I bet you, I, I would bet money he'll read this book. Uh, I talked to a number of his uh, top officials from time to time. I have not spoken with President Obama directly, but I would be surprised if he doesn't read this book. That's real, that's exciting, because this sentence right here, Barack Obama is a handsome fella. I think that was a smart <laughs> thing to put in there. He's a very bright guy, and he's a and great communicator, he's make, right. and, he's, and he's inclusive. And he's got a chance to do He's this. got a chance to do it, but he's got to start in 2010. My final question. You were the, the Peter G. Peterson Foundation? That's made up, right? No, that's a real deal. It's only about two years old. I gotta meet this Peter G. Peterson guy. <laughs> Come back, America. It's on the bookshelf. You really should read this. It is incredibly common sense, easily laid out. It, it may not necessarily be doable because we're in such times, but it, it, it's really something to read and, we and get a nice grasp We've got to do it to save on. the republic, John. What the? You heard me. I, be I better read republic. it again. I was cramming for the interview. All right. <laughs> David Walker. Thank you. John. Thank you so much.
Can you imagine the Obama administration? It seems a little unbelievable to me. You know what he did? Obama said today, uh, he said, okay, that's it. I'm drawing the line. That Consumer uh, Financial Protection Agency, right? Non-negotiable. When's the last time he said non-negotiable? Do you remember? <laughs> okay. In healthcare, everything was negotiable. Now every report is saying they got a new attitude at the White House, and they think that they can pass this thing, and they think that they could put the Republicans in a tough spot and say, hey, you're either going to choose reform or you're going to choose to be with the bankers. <laughs> it's like they turn on the Young Turks, and they're like, yeah, you know what, that's not such a bad idea. <laughs> okay, so he's now saying, oh, I'm going to put you on the spot. You know what, you're going to kill the consumer, because before the Massachusetts election, th that Consumer uh, Protection Agency was slip sliding away. Dodd had already apparently struck a deal with the Republicans to say, all right, we won't include it in the package. Or it'll be included, but it'll be under another regulatory agency, and it won't have as much power, et cetera, et cetera, which means it was going to be nonsense, right? Now, after the election, now, Elizabeth Warren has always been great, right? She's the one that came up with this idea in the first place. She draws a line and says, if it doesn't include it, then it's not worth doing at all. Now, that's important. But she was a, before, she was a voice alone in the desert, right? Now, all of a sudden, Obama adopts her position. It's like, draw the line in the sand. Non-negotiable. It's going to be in the bill. Now, when the president says that, you know what happens? It goes in the bill. Okay? So now Dodd is not negotiating anymore with the Republicans about killing that. If you let him get away with it, they were going to. So if things stand as they are now, this Massachusetts election is going to be, can be, possibly be, a great blessing in disguise. Because... The attitude of the White House is a million times more important than one Senate seat, okay? <laughs> that 60 votes and the supermajority, they were never going to get it on strong legislation anyway. We saw what happened with health care. With health care, they whittled it away and compromised and negotiated and weakened it and weakened it until corporate America loved it, and it was weak sauce. And that they couldn't even get past. The supermajority, if, if, if James Cameron put it in a movie, it'd be called unobtainium, okay? Give up on it. It's not necessary. You know how you do it? You do it Uyghur style, okay? You go, look, I got 59 senators. Bush and Cheney never had close to 59 senators, and they got everything they wanted. You know how they did it? They intimidated the other side. They said, oh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to be weak? You're going to be a pansy? You're going to vote against the war? War rocks. You're going to lose your seat. And what did all the Democrats do? Okay, 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 and they voted for the war, right? So now what's Obama doing with his new attitude? Oh, you're going to vote with the banks. Oh, you like to vote with the banks. You think that's good politics. Have at it, Hoss. I, look, I'm in the prediction business, okay? <laughs> and these days, partner, business is a booming, okay? And what I'm telling you is, with this new attitude, and you'll be able to get to test it, and that's what I do on the show all the time. With this new attitude from the White House, Financial reform will be bipartisan. Now, that's a bold prediction, right? Because so far, they're throwing up nothing but donuts. The Republicans don't give a single vote on this single issue, right? Now, on this most important issue, where they get most of their money, they're going to vote with the Democrats? That seems very unlikely, right? And I'm telling you right now, it is not unlikely. Because if they play it right, and they bash them over the head and say, okay, with us or with the bankers, they can't vote with the bankers. They can't. They're going to be exposed. In the end, they have to buckle. God, I hope Obama is as strong as these last two days indicate. Because if he comes with that kind of strength and those Republicans buckle, first of all, that would be 
awesome day. Can you imagine Republicans buckling? Yeah, <laughs> has it happened in your lifetime? You know, I mean, Democrats buckle on every issue. Republicans never buckle, right? I, I can't remember the last time they buckled, right? So if they start buckling, and all of a sudden, that myth is shattered. The myth of, oh, we, the Republicans are strong, and they, you know, we have to do it their way. And that myth is shattered. And it's a whole new day in America. And, and Obama learns the lesson, oh, wait, you know what? If I'm strong, if I crack the whip, these dogs will follow. Then we can get anything done. Thanks for listening, everybody. Welcome to February. I just have a couple of notes to to get through today. First of all, uh, it is a new month, and that means it's time to vote at Podcast Alley. It really does help the show to get up on the top 10 list on their homepage there, but the competition is stiff. It's 100% utterly possible for us to get there, but I really do need you to go and vote. It's really simple. It takes like 30 seconds of your time and then really does help more people find the show. So uh, there's a link on bestoftheleft.com that'll take you to Podcast Alley right to where you need to go, or you can go straight to podcastalley.com to cast your vote for best of the left we'll get on the homepage. more people will find the show and although they won't know who you are they'll be thanking you for it now to get you in the mood to do that i, lo- I love to do this every once in a while i get a comment uh I'll, you know i'll see it either there will be a comment on the itunes reviews or someone will leave a comment elsewhere and it'll catch my eye and and i like to bring it to you so this one is from podcast alley left just recently i i love this because of course, this show got this comment. I mean, seriously, what, what other show is going to get a comment like this? Listen, I don't speak from authority or facts, but it seems to me that this podcast is best of more things than merely what it is purported to be the best of, <laughs> which I found hilarious. So thanks, thanks to the person who wrote that. I, I heartily challenge you to go, uh, you know, take 30 seconds to vote for the show at Podcast Alley and, and come up with a comment that'll top that one. Now, just to compare, I thought, yeah, of course, uh, hoity-toity, liberal, Washington, D.C., ivory tower podcast like this one is going to get a comment like that. I mean, we use clips from NPR. What do you expect? Like, what kind of listeners do we have? So I thought, well, why don't I compare to, to the show this you know pretty popular uh, political show that's always number one on Podcast Alley, and until this year, they always won the Best Political Podcast Award. So I, I just thought, why don't I take a couple of representative comments from the list for Free Talk Live? This is what I came up with: "Quote FTL is cool. That's cool spelled K E W L." And then secondly. FTL is the shiznit. And of course, they misspelled V. They spelled it T-E-H. And then, of course, shiznit was spelled in, in the normal way. So there you go. There's just a nice, nice little comparison, a little juxtaposition that I, I thought went well. Now, of course, I want to remind everyone, in case you've been living in a box, Best of the Left podcast has an iPhone and iPod Touch application available 
in case you're interested in that sort of thing. You get all the shows that are, you know, all the archives all the way back. As, and then for all the new shows that are coming out, there's actually bonus content included in there. So the app's like two bucks, go to the store, you buy it, you have it forever and get the bonus content from here on out. Today's bonus content is from the Young Turks and it's just, it's Jank talking about uh, Obama's bailout fee and you know, is it enough for, well, you know, is it enough? So if you have the app now or you want to go get it, go check out the bonus content. Finally, I'm going to thank a couple of members who absolutely helped keep this show going. John K signed up on January 4th and uh, and went above and beyond and went ahead and signed up for a full year membership. And Patricia D signed up January 24th went up and you know she signed up for a regular monthly membership, but went above the uh, the minimum donation amount. So I want to particularly thank both of them for uh, for their generous donations and and seriously helping to keep the show going like I have been saying for a long time and will continue to say uh, forever and ever. I just couldn't do it without the members. So, of course, if you are interested in membership, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. And that's actually going to do it for today. So uh, please consider supporting the show just by telling all of your friends about it, first of all. And then check out bestoftheleft.com where there's a big orange box that says support BOTL. And it has all the different ways that you can support the show, whether by, you know, individual uh, one-time donation or a membership or voting at Podcast Alley, leaving five-star reviews in iTunes, shopping on Amazon.com through our search box so we get a commission for it, all sorts of things you can do. Of course, you can stay connected between each of our episodes by uh, visiting us on Twitter.com slash Best of the Left and Facebook.com slash Best of the Left. And finally, the links to the music and all the sources used in this and every show are always going to be in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Black and Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like Hi, my name is Mike. Can I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So, thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it. Hey, if I can come up with a fiver every month, I think most people can. And if you can't, keep listening. Do those free things that Jay asks you to do. And then subscribe when you can. Thanks.